Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. One of the challenges when you're trying to drive an industry movement is that you need to make sure that you're not creating something which is so standardized that it actually dumbs down what the best firms are doing or makes it a record-keeping exercise rather than a genuine attempt to actually boost diversity. Today's guest discusses UK regulators' recent proposals to foster diversity and inclusion in the city, including the aspects of the measures she would like to see given more consideration, and the role finance bosses must play to ensure the initiative's success. She details how AI tools are being used to adapt the role of the compliance officers she manages, and the skill set she believes will be required for future compliance officers to succeed. She also shares her insight on how best to navigate guidance from the Financial Conduct Authority, and she should know as Tracy McDermott spent 15 years at the City Watchdog, including 10 months as its acting CEO, before joining global banking group Standard Chartered in 2017 as its group head of corporate, public and regulatory affairs. In 2018, she took on responsibility for the bank's compliance function. And since 2019, she has worked as Standard Chartered's group head of conduct, financial crime and compliance. She also plays an influential role in several industry reform initiatives, which she details in the upcoming episode. Hi, Tracy. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a brief overview of your role and what's topping your to-do list currently. So I'm the Group Head of Conduct Financial Crime and Compliance at Standard Chartered Bank and a member of the group management team. And what that actually means is that I'm responsible for our overall compliance with regulations, financial crime and our conduct agenda across the Standard Chartered Group worldwide. So it's quite an interesting and, and challenging remit. As well as that role, I'm also the lead for our work Standard Chartered with Progress Together, which is an organisation that's been set up within the city to promote socio-economic diversity. And I chair the Financial Markets and Standards Board's Conduct and Ethics Committee and also chair the Net Zero Banking Alliance. So that's the sort of broad agenda of what I do on a day-to-day basis. You asked what was top of the agenda at the moment. And obviously, January is always a good time to ask that question because you've got a nice, clear vision for the year. And there's a few areas that 
that are really driving what we're focusing on within the team. The overarching one is that we're operating in an incredibly complex and fast-changing landscape at the moment, whether that be talking about regulatory change, whether that be talking about geopolitics, whether we're talking about customer expectations in terms of speed of delivery, in terms of the types of services they want. And we also know we operate in a world where trust can be lost in a heartbeat and it's very easy for people to move around and so on. So with all of that backdrop, one of the big areas of focus for us as a compliance function is how do we make sure that we've got the tools and skills and agility to help the bank successfully address those challenges. And what that includes is obviously a big focus on looking at data and how do we use data differently and better to inform our roles, including the exciting stuff around how might you use generative AI in the future, but actually also just the small mundane aspect of how do you get the data in the right places and start to mine it in a more effective way. A big focus on efficiency. How do we make sure we're really focusing resources on what only we can do and really making sure we're there as a challenge and oversight for the first line? Looking at areas where we can make our own delivery more efficient, again, partly using data, but looking at things like surveillance, transaction monitoring and so on, which are huge consumers of resources with, I think, probably mixed effectiveness, if you actually looked at that from a pure efficiency perspective. And then importantly, really looking at how do we make sure that the whole topic of conduct and compliance is not seen as something that's over there, but is seen as something that's at the core, the heart of how people do business. So really trying to help people relate what they do on a day-to-day basis to how you also deliver deliver good conduct outcomes, good customer outcomes, good regulatory outcomes. And so at the end of last year, for instance, we revised our code of conduct and ethics, really looked at whether we could provide that in a much more visually appealing format, less words, more pictures, but also importantly, linking into our overall firm strategy. So looking at standard charters, valued behaviours, looking at our strategy, looking at what our stands are and making conduct something that's really part of, okay, this is helps you make decisions in tricky situations. You can be guided by this code and really looking at how we engage people in a different way on that so that the code of conduct isn't just something that you attest to once a year or pull out when there's a disciplinary to see if there's been a breach. It's actually something that you can see connects into everything else we're doing. So quite a lot on the agenda for 2024, quite exciting times ahead. Yes, there's a lot there to keep you busy, isn't there? In relation to your work in embedding this culture of good conduct and compliance within Standard Chartered, you mentioned that you would like that to be fully embedded in the organisation, not something that people just attest to once a year. How do you measure that that is actually being achieved? The measurement is one of the most challenging things when you're talking about culture and conduct, because quite often you measure things by what you see that goes wrong or by the absence of of something going wrong. But for a number of years, we have had questions in our annual staff surveys that track areas of conduct and culture. So areas around whether people feel comfortable to speak up, areas around inclusion, whether they feel that they're listened to, whether they feel that their ideas are welcomed and so on. And we have something that we call an inclusion index, which is a set of questions that we take an algorithmic look at. And don't ask me exactly how we do that. (laughs) But the machine does clever things with with the answers to that to give us an indicator of where we're progressing 
on some of those issues. We obviously also look through our conduct dashboard on the sort of data that you would expect around grievances, around breaches for personal account dealing or whatever it is. What we've really tried to do with things like the inclusion index to get indicators of the positive as well as indicators of the negative because indicators of the positive are much harder to come by. Okay. And you mentioned that you've been looking into how to use data to better inform the way in which the compliance function within Standard Chartered does its work. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? What data sources are you looking at and how has that helped you better inform the function? So we have, as with all large financial services organisations, a gifts and entertainment policy. So people have to apply for approval to accept gifts and entertainments and so on. And it's a conduct question, it's an anti-bribery and corruption question. We have, for many, many years, had a process where you put that data into a system and somebody me or whoever on my team goes through it and approves. So yes, you can do that. That's reasonable entertainment or whatever. What we've now done a proof of concept on is actually saying, okay, we've now got several years of data in there. Can we actually apply machine learning to that so we can automate that process? So you can take the human out of that process and you can only take the human out of that process because you've got a whole series of decisions that have been made over many, many years from which the machine can learn and then say, okay, yes, lunch at this sort of price is, is likely to be acceptable. A helicopter flight is likely to be unacceptable. So that's a, a very simple example, actually, but a way you can use the accumulated data we've gathered over many years to then use new tools to be able to drive simplicity, efficiency, and so on. Where we'd then like to go with that in a slightly more ambitious way this, which isn't a today issue, but it's a looking forward one, is actually how do you then take that approach and say, we have you know, 3,000 people giving compliance advice across the globe. Actually, if we could capture all of that advice in a way which we could then apply tools like generative AI to, you could actually have a 24-7, 365 days a year availability of that information to people where and when they want it, consistency of advice would be built into that process. And you would also be able to have a very clear access of records of what you said and when. We have a compliance chatbot, which we call Ask Compliance. But at the moment, it deals with relatively simple queries because of the way the technology is set up. It has to have a decision tree process. And what you might see over time is something that can deal with more sophisticated queries. It's really important to stress that that doesn't mean you're ever going to comply completely remove the human from compliance. What you can do, though, is make sure that your compliance teams are really focused on where you're adding greater value. So there's lots of opportunities to think about how you do things differently. That does require all of us, certainly in the second line, but also in the first line, to think differently about our jobs and, and to get comfortable with data and get comfortable with technology, which is certainly not my background and something where you have to get over that slight trepidation of stepping into the unknown but there's some really exciting opportunities for there and it's a new skill set that we as compliance professionals and indeed probably every professional has got to learn. Yeah exactly how do you think that embracing those changes might change the skill set that is required within the compliance function? 
So I think there's two primary areas where it changes skill sets that's required. So one is the obvious one, which is you need to be conversant with data and technology, both from a mechanical perspective, what can you do, what can't you do, but also from a regulatory perspective and an ethical perspective. So what are the privacy requirements in relation to data? What are the things you could do with data, but you probably shouldn't. How do you ensure that you apply principles around fairness, ethics, accountability, transparency in terms of the way we look at at the way we use data? So there's a technical set of skills that we have to become more familiar with. The second area, I think, is, and it's probably not a new skill, but it's probably brings it to a more emphasis, which is the need to use judgment. So with the availability of the tools we have now, just knowing the answer, knowing where to find something in the rule book is not going to be something that helps compliance officers of the future succeed. What helps compliance officers of the future succeed is their ability to take that information, to apply it in the business strategy context that they're operating in and to apply the judgment on top of that to say actually this is how we should approach this or whether it's about dealing with the really difficult situations the ones that actually the machines are not going to be able to answer because they're going to require the application of human judgment or importantly actually allowing compliance officers the time to be not just dealing with today's issues, but also looking at what do the future risks look like and how do we adapt to meet those future risks and get ahead of those. As I said, in some ways, not a new skill, but it will become increasingly important as in a way knowledge becomes a given because its knowledge is much more freely and democratically available. Okay. And we've spoken about your efforts to embed good conduct and compliance within the culture of Standard Chartered. And obviously a critical component when seeking to create a positive working culture is also fostering diversity, equality and inclusion in the workplace. And we're speaking not long after the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority published papers late last year with proposals as to how businesses across the city could boost diversity and inclusion. The consultation period on those papers closed in mid-December. Are you able to summarise how you responded? So in broad terms, we're very positive about the focus from the regulators on diversity and, and inclusion. And in fact, our purpose statement as a bank is actually to drive commerce and prosperity through our unique diversity. So diversity is embedded very much in the heart of our business model because of the nature of the business we do as a multinational global bank. And if you're able to to tap into that, you get better decisions, better outcomes, better products, and so on. So in general, very big supporter of the fact that there is a focus on this across the industry and positive around the way that the regulators have framed a lot of this around things like making sure that you focus on not just particular diversity characteristics, but, but diversity of thought because of the way it helps you avoid groupthink and walking into to problems. Also think it's really important to think about diverse customer needs. I mentioned at the beginning that customer expectations are very rapidly changing in, in the environment we're in now. And I think the more as a business that you can get a different range of perspectives, the more you can start to design products and services that are actually going to meet the needs of the customers of, of tomorrow as well as the customers of today. And it's also really important from a talent perspective in terms of tapping into the pool of talent that's available. We've historically 
as a financial services industry, narrowed our focus on the talent pool to very specific segments over time. And we've excluded a lot of people and there's an awful lot of untapped talent there. And the ability to tap into that is going to be even more important as we go forward. Is there anything you disliked or felt missed the mark within the papers? So as with every consultation, there are some challenges around it. And one of them is what I might call the levelling up problem. There's a lot of firms that have been very focused on diversity, equity and inclusion for many years. And if you read the consultation paper, the FCA and PRA would say there's some firms where it really hasn't made much impression at all yet. And one of the challenges when you're trying to drive an industry movement is that you need to make sure that you're not creating something which is so standardized that it actually dumbs down what the best firms are doing or makes it a record keeping exercise rather than a genuine attempt to actually boost diversity. So one of the challenges is how do you make sure that what you put out there is flexible enough to enable different firms to adapt either their existing programs or or programs that they've yet to design to fit with what the regulator is trying to achieve without seeking to mandate a culture or an approach which is driven completely by the regulators. And just to make that a bit more specific, one of the things that the regulator is talking about is having a, a sort of inclusion index. So a set of questions that firms should ask their employees, which they will then look at to measure whether or not the firm is genuinely inclusive, because obviously, as we all know, diversity without inclusion is not really of very much use. So we have two areas where we've commented on the consultation. So one of which is we've got our own inclusion index, which we've had for a number of years. We've got trend data from that. We don't really want to change that because then we'll lose that trend data. And the second area of concern is that actually if we standardize those questions across the industry and everybody has to do it at the same time, you forget the employee in all of this, the employee's desire and requirement to actually want to complete these things. These are all voluntary. So you can end up with an information overload, which doesn't really tell you anything. So that's one of the areas where we'd like to look again. Another area is as a global firm, inevitably, there's a focus on the UK in the proposals and talk of a UK strategy. And we have a global strategy for diversity and inclusion where we've focused on specific areas that we think are underrepresented and where we have programs to try and address that. Again, we need to make sure that the proposals that come out from the regulators are sufficiently flexible to allow people to design a program which meets the needs of their organisation rather than having a separate UK one sitting in a box. So it's incredibly difficult to get global consistency and coordination on many, many things in regulation. And I suspect this would be one of the ones that would be even more challenging. So from the FCA and PRA perspectives, starting by saying, actually, this is what we expect of firms in the UK. This is what we think best practice should be, I think is the right way to go. But it's a question of ensuring that that can be done within a context which enables a global environment. And then the third area is around the data collection and what data people are expected to collect and how you collect it. And there's two areas where 
we think further focus is needed. One is the question of what you mandate and what you don't mandate, and whether you create some sort of hierarchy almost of different characteristics. And there's been a lot of discussion, for instance, about socioeconomic data not being mandated. So does that mean it's less important than something that is mandated? And then the second area is obviously that there are some aspects of data that are particularly sensitive, whether that be around faith and religion, whether that be around sexuality and so on. And it's important as we think about the data collection aspects of this to think about the practicalities as well. And in order to get people to disclose, you've really got to focus on the hearts and minds and people wanting to be willing to disclose because they think that there is something useful that will happen as a result of it. And so that whole data collection piece is quite a a complex area which probably needs a bit more looking at to say okay how do we work with the grain of what people are already collecting and then how do we build up from that. You mentioned mandatory disclosures. The papers put forward late last year suggested that financial services companies be mandated to disclose in areas such as workers' religion, age, sexual orientation, sex or gender, long-term health conditions and ethnicity. And some companies objected to that. They saw such disclosures as running the risk of flouting employees' privacy. What are your thoughts on the criticism that the regulators faced on that aspect of the proposals? And how would you like to see that aspect of the proposals be adapted, if at all? It links to a number of the things we've already talked about. If you want to genuinely just drive diversity and inclusion, you need to start by saying, what is it that we as an organisation want to achieve with our colleagues, our employees? And in order to achieve whatever that aim is, you need to understand your colleagues and your employees. And that does mean you need to understand the various characteristics of them as individuals. There's a whole range of questions that you can ask people. Their willingness to answer those questions will be driven by a whole host of factors. So it may be driven by the culture of where they work or where they've grown up and so on. But ultimately, the reason people will disclose is because they believe that there's a fair exchange of value going on. So that by providing that information to their employer, something will happen that will be better than the outcome if they didn't disclose information that's sensitive. Clearly, an absolutely core component of that is that the data they disclose has got to be maintained in a way which is confidential. So it's absolutely critical for trust that that is maintained. But it's more than just that expectation of privacy. It's also that you've got to get something out of it as a result of doing it. So they've got to see firms actually starting to take action to do things differently. So in terms of the specific challenges that have been raised on the mandatory disclosures, some aspects of the mandatory disclosures are pretty commonly disclosed already. So gender being probably the most obvious one. Other aspects are potentially more novel and will be disclosed in some firms and not with others. And with this one, it's really a question of making sure that there's clarity about the basic lawful base for collection to meet the privacy obligations, but also a clarity about what it is firms are expected to do about it. And this comes back again to there's got to be a certain amount of flexibility in this process, because if you suddenly go out to all of your employees, having never had any interest in diversity and inclusion before, and you ask them 25 questions, which they feel are very intrusive about their own personal circumstances, you may not get 
a particularly positive response on which to start your diversity and inclusion journey. If you say, actually, what we really want to focus on is how do we create a better environment for people who have care responsibilities to take one of the non-standard ones, actually, you might then get a better response because you could say, okay, there's a focus on a specific issue. That's why this data is needed. That's what the firm's going to do about it. So it really comes down to being very clear about what's the data that's usually easily available and that people are quite comfortable disclosing, and you maybe mandate that. And then where do you go into the next phase in terms of collecting that data and making sure that all of it is collected because something is going to happen (laughs) as a result rather than collected for the sake of having a bunch of boxes that you've ticked. Okay, so should those measures be introduced without any changes, despite the objections that were raised, you would expect there to be a heavy obligation on the firms that have to comply with these measures to communicate internally to their workers what the benefit of disclosing this information is. Yeah, and there's different ways, obviously, different firms could go about that. If, if the regulator mandates it, that's an easy thing to say, you have to disclose this because the regulator mandates it. Obviously, there's got to be a prefer not to say option. You can't force people to disclose this. Part of driving an inclusive culture is driving a culture where there is mutual trust and respect. So starting just with mandating something doesn't necessarily get you to the end outcome. So regardless of whether the list is a whole list, a subset of the list, anything else, all firms are going to need to engage with employees to help them understand how the regulator is thinking about diversity and inclusion and on why this is something that's on the regulatory agenda just as much as on the firm agenda. And again, in some firms, lots of this data will already be being collected. So employees will be like, okay, so what? In other firms, it might be less so. And it's very important that that prefer not to say option is something that is also respected and that there isn't an automatic conclusion from the regulators that if a high proportion of people prefer not to say in relation to any specific aspect of diversity, that that doesn't automatically mean there's a cultural problem there. It may just be that you're at a point in that firm's journey where people are like, well, why is this relevant? And speaking from personal experience, I used to say prefer not to say all the time until I got quite a long way into my career because I was always of the view of what differences it makes. It's completely irrelevant to everything, whether I'm male, female, parent or not parent. And it took me a while to realise that actually, no, in fact, it's useful to have that data because it helps management to look at how different outcomes might differ between different people. But for a long time, I I said I prefer not to say on everything. So it's a legitimate choice for people to make. We need to make sure that they're not penalised for doing that. Was there any specific career moment that changed your mind in terms of disclosing that information? It was as I became more senior, I would have been at the FCA at the time or FSA, and as a mum of young children, realising that whether I liked it or not, I was a role model for people because I was a mum of young children who had a relatively senior job. So people do look at you in that context and you can say it's irrelevant, it shouldn't matter. But the reality is that we know it does matter in the current world. So actually, if you're going to be in that position, you might as well embrace it. Okay. And Aviva's CEO, Amanda Blanc, said recently that there is no non-diverse hire at insurance company Aviva that hasn't been signed off by me and the chief people officer. And this was framed by some media outlets as her vetting white male hires. But I think it's more that she was checking due process had been followed for such hires. I wonder what are your thoughts on that approach? 
So I don't know about everything going up to the CEO. I think her comment was probably <laughs> towards a, a particular sector of, of Evo because otherwise she'd spend all of the time doing uh, reviews. But it is really important that the recruitment process is an open and fair process. And so one of the things we have focused on is very much, do you have a balanced shortlist? So do you have typically both male and female candidates, but also other diversity aspects. Is your interview panel diverse? So how are you making sure you get those fair outcomes? And how do you make sure that you conduct an interview process that is as fair as it possibly can be? Now, we all have inherent biases. We can't get away from that. But if you ask, for instance, similar questions of people, you will get comparable answers and so on. So it's been a big focus for us. And we do track data on number of applicants. This is where disclosure becomes really important, right? Because if people don't disclose, (laughs) you don't know. Um, But gender being the obvious and easy one, what's the applicant pipeline going in? How many of those people get through the CV sift? How many of those people get to first interview? How many get to second interview and so on? So making sure that machinery works and for want of a better word, policed along the way is really important to ensure that if you get a shortlist that's all one gender, you're going back to the headhunter, the HR colleague or whatever and say, no, this isn't good enough. And that's certainly something that we do within my area and within the bank more broadly. Okay. How optimistic are you that the UK regulators will achieve their goal of boosting diversity and inclusion across the city through these measures? So from discussions across the industry, this question of flexibility and making sure that we are able to continue to drive initiatives within organisations rather than just mandated is a fairly common theme. So I would be very hopeful that there would be a way through that that's found that actually works. Because I don't think what the regulators want to do is to put the brakes on <laughs> diversity and inclusion initiatives that are effective. And the balancing act they're going to have to do is between the desire for consistency and comparability and simplicity for firms Z versus that opportunity to enable different firms to drive greater diversity and inclusion in different ways. I think that is possible to square that circle. I'm sure there'll be some elements where we think, oh, well, they could have gone a bit further or a bit less far. But I'm pretty hopeful that the end outcome will be a sensible set of proposals that actually helps the industry to drive this forward. In terms of will it help the FCA and PRA achieve the goal of driving greater diversity and inclusion, it's a tool. It in itself is not going to drive greater diversity and inclusion. That's got to come from the firms and the industry themselves really pushing to make this happen. You you can mandate all the data collection you want, but actually, unless people genuinely get behind that and believe in the importance of this, things aren't going to, to change. But I think you can see from what's happened over many years from initiatives like things like the 30% Club, when you get a groundswell of data and you get a groundswell of people focusing on an issue, you do see progress. So there will be progress, but that progress has got to come from the firm's themselves embracing this and not just being something that's mandated by the regulator. Okay. These papers that the FCMPRA put out also give more clarity as to the regulator's expectations when it comes to monitoring or stamping out your employee's non-financial misconduct or misbehaviour outside of the day job. And this is something that the FCA in particular has long said it wants to clamp down on, but there has been few high-profile enforcement actions in that regard. What do you make of the regulator's recent guidance on this area? Do you think we can expect the long-awaited uptick in enforcement action from the FCA on non-financial misconduct? I very much welcome 
welcome the further guidance that the FCA is giving on how we should think about non-financial misconduct, both in terms of breaches of the conduct rules and in terms of fitness and properness assessments, because it's something where I think there are differing views and perspectives being taken across the industry. And so having more consistency in terms of could non-financial misconduct outside the workplace constitute a breach of the conduct rules or be relevant to a fit and proper assessment is really important because having that consistency between firms is important for fairness for individuals, particularly as it feeds into regulatory references and so on. There is still scope for more clarity and more specificity, but it's a really good start to put that very firmly within the context of the existing rules and requirements. I mean, in terms of the enforcement side of it, I don't think that the measure of whether the regulators focus on this as being effective should be whether the regulator is taking enforcement action. I think that what is much more important is what's actually happening within organisations. And we've obviously had a whole series over many years of interventions around the requirement to report conduct breaches, the requirement to give regulatory references that include references to breaches and so on. And this additional guidance will make it clearer when you have to capture non-financial misconduct in that. So I don't think the measure of this should be, do you see lots of high profile enforcement actions about non-financial misconduct? It actually should be, is this driving greater consistency in the way we across the industry address this and ensuring people get as appropriate the mark on their card if they are guilty of behaviour which is inappropriate. So this will help. I don't know whether it will lead to more enforcement action or not, but I don't think that's the real test. Okay. It's very interesting you say that because something that the financial services sector has struggled with since the FCA has made clear that they are focusing more on non-financial misconduct is what to disclose in terms of employee behaviour, because there hasn't been that clarity from the regulator. So they're almost over-disclosing in some areas because they don't want to be caught out. That obviously creates a huge burden on the firms themselves. So almost any clarity is useful in that respect. But you said that there was scope for more clarity. What did you mean there? And Generally, are there any opportunities you believe that the regulators have missed within these papers? So in terms of more clarity, it's just giving more examples. So, for example, if we go back to the conduct rules, you've got conduct rule breach one, which is the integrity breach. And there's been a lot of debate in the industry historically about, well, sexual harassment is that an integrity question or not? And then got conduct rule two, which is about due skill, clear and diligence. Is that really appropriate for sexual harassment? So it doesn't necessarily fit neatly in either of those rules as you think about them. The guidance that the FCA has given has made it clear that actually, yes, sexual harassment, serious sexual harassment could be a breach of conduct rule one. It could also be a breach of conduct rule two, depending on the the circumstances. So that is helpful because it puts it clearly within the framework of the the conduct rules. What there's still some greyness about, what would make it a two rather than a one? So if there's an example given around intention, so if somebody didn't intend to harass, but they had the effect of harassing, does that make it fall into two rather than one? So it's just more clarity, almost case studies around what are the circumstances that would mean you're in one category rather than the other. And that's never going to be completely black and white. We're always going to have to exercise judgment as individual firms. But given the consequences for employees of being found to be in breach of a conduct rule, given the fact that that then flows into your regulatory reference and and so on and so forth, 
it's important that we have as much consistency across the industry as possible to ensure that people are being treated fairly and that we all have appropriate visibility of it. In terms of anything that they've missed, I don't think there's anything fundamental. I think the really interesting challenge going forward is one that we've touched on already, which is exactly how far does the role of the regulator go in relation to this space? The regulator definitely has a legitimate interest in this area in terms of driving diversity and inclusion and in terms of making sure non-financial misconduct is really focused on as a potential risk to the firm. But it's also important that this doesn't become a tick box exercise where people think they've complied with their diversity and inclusion obligations because they've collected a bunch of data and reported it to the regulator. And so the next phase of this really is how does the industry and the regulators work together to deliver the ultimate goal of a more diverse and inclusive sector with all of the benefits that that brings, rather than creating something which makes everybody say, oh, yes, we've done that, we've ticked a box, but it doesn't actually change anything. How would you like to see the industry and the regulators work together? Do you have something in mind? It's around sharing best practice. And I mentioned at the beginning, Progress Together, that's working on socioeconomic diversity, which is a relatively underexplored area in terms of diversity characteristics, but is a massively important area. The occupation of your parents at 14 is still one of the biggest indicators now of what your future success in life will be in 2024 in the UK, which is extraordinary and something we should all be ashamed about, frankly. But actually, the progress together was set up as in part as a result of work that was done by a task force across the city, which included the regulators. That's the sort of thing that we need to be looking at. There's lots of initiatives in the diversity area, whether that be around gender or ethnicity or sexuality. But actually, how do we bring those conversations together? How do we get the regulators in those conversations as equal participants, not as the person who's just setting the rules. And then we'll see practice and the rules evolving over time to reflect that best practice and to push perhaps the laggards to make it get to the top of their agenda, but at the same time still allowing those who want to go further to do that. So that's what we're looking for is really that partnership across the public and the private sector to drive the outcomes that we all want. Okay, and let's hope we see that develop. In terms of missed opportunities, do you see there being no mandatory disclosure for socioeconomic data? As one, would you like there to be a mandatory disclosure for socioeconomic data and if so what i think the what in terms of disclosure is actually quite easy here because there are some set questions that have been developed by progress together as a result of looking at work that's been done by organizations like the social mobility foundation sutton trust and so on and so it's two or three common questions about things like parental occupation in your teens what sort of school you went to and so on so the what is quite easy i think the whether it should be mandatory is actually much more challenging Progress Together is obviously advocating that if you're going to have mandatory disclosures, then this one should be mandatory as well, because it's a really important aspect that's not been focused on enough. And you don't want it to be seen that socioeconomic status is a somehow a poor relation of gender or other diversity characteristics. And that's particularly the case if you're going to go for a longer list of mandatory disclosures, as we've talked about already. So I agree with the principle of that. I do think we have to increase focus and visibility on this issue because it's long been neglected. 
But I do think there is a counterpoint to that, which is that this is still relatively new for a lot of people and a lot of organisations. And I think when you have that situation, you need to think about, do you start off with mandatory or do you want to give people a little bit of a chance to build the muscle to do it on a voluntary basis first? Because obviously it's data we're not used to collecting from our employees, apart from Progress Together members, and it's not data that employees are necessarily used to sharing. And so the explanations required might be a bit more. So I think from a practical perspective, if the list of mandatory disclosures does get narrowed, then I think it would make sense for this one to be voluntary, but obviously moving towards mandatory as we go forward. Okay, interesting. What are the next steps in terms of this consultation from the FCA and PRA for those that might not be familiar with it? So the consultation closed on the 18th of December. They will obviously be looking at the input that they've got imagine we would be hearing back on what their final proposals and final rules are, including the timing for implementation and timing for reporting in the first half of this year. And there's sort of some quite micro-technical stuff in there around exactly when you report and whether you align it with your own annual reporting and so on. So I think We'll get the final rules at some point, probably fairly soon. And then I imagine implementation will start in earnest in the firms this year, but you'll start seeing the output of that in 2025 reporting. Okay. And we've discussed the FCA's expectations around a number of areas today. How does your role as the former acting CEO of the Watchdog help you understand how best to interpret their requirements now? The key thing that I always try and encourage colleagues to think about is don't just look at the specifics, look at what the intent is. So this isn't just about the letter of the rules and so on. You've obviously got to focus on that, but let's think about what is it the regulator is trying to achieve and how do we best adapt our strategy or work to help achieve that goal. And that's the most important area to keep focused on that broader intent, because otherwise you can get lost in a lot of detail and then you realise that you, you may have implemented everything perfectly, but you've not actually really driven forward the intent. Okay. And generally and lastly, what's one upcoming or current challenge you think not enough people are paying attention to? One of the big challenges is the environment we're operating in at the moment is quite turbulent and the economic situation in many countries, including the UK, is more challenging than it's been for many years. You've got elections forthcoming, you've got changing social and economic dynamic and it's really important that we as organisations make sure that we're able to respond and react and be agile to meet changing needs as they arise in that situation. And I think the big picture point there is it's really important for all of us to be taking a broad picture view when we're looking at issues, not just narrowly head down in our little financial services bubble (laughs) informed by what's happening in the world around us. And sometimes we can get a little bit lost in our own world. And it's important to take that bigger picture view because a lot is changing around us. And if we don't keep up with it, we'll get left behind. So make sure to discuss issues with peers so that you are aware of the broader picture and not just what's happening at your firm. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Well, you wear so many hats that we could have talked for hours, Tracy, but we have covered a lot of ground during this conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.